Welcome to the Creative AI Podcast with me, your host, Karma Lahutra. And over the next one hour, let's explore the impact of AI on all things creative. Today we have Katya Forbes and we're going to be talking to her about AI automation technology experience design and design as a whole. Hey Katya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. So a brief introduction about Katya. Katya is the managing director of Designit Australia and New Zealand. It's a global strategic design firm. Katya is considered to be an Australian pioneer with over two decades experience in the field of experience design. Designit itself has clients like Cisco, BMW, DuPont, Lloyds Bank, NASA, Qantas Airlines and Visa amongst a host of global brands. She's a sort after a keynote speaker has spoken at Interaction Latin America. Designer Bangalore, women in design, leaders in heels, women in commerce. So as you can tell her one of her personal motivations is to inspire other women especially in her industry to reach toward the definition of professional success. Lastly, Katya was recognized as one of the top 10 Australian women entrepreneurs by My Entrepreneur magazine and also named one of the 100 women of influence by Westpac and the Australian Financial Review. Wow, that's quite an intro, Katya. So, welcome again to the show. Thank you so much. This is why I love it when somebody else does the introduction. It's <laughs> fabulous. But I you... do it myself. Like, oh yeah, I got that. <laughs> that so when other people do it you know it's really it sounds super right but and it's all true so yeah it's all true it's fantastic it is thank you you're welcome happy to have you and a couple of other things you know that i i've also sort of got to know about katya the wonders of the internet so katya is also a climate change advocate she loves pets is into motorbikes and even loves ice hockey so can you tell us a little bit about those personal interests katya Well, let's just frame that correctly. I don't love ice hockey. I play uh, you play hockey. ice hockey. All right. Yeah. I stand corrected. I play ice hockey. It's one of my it's absolutely one of my passion sports for sure. Okay. Um, it's one of the things that you can do because it requires 100% of your attention. Uh-huh. There's no space for anything else like thinking about work. Yeah. I'm also a horse rider as well. Oh wow, okay. Wow. Yeah, you have to pay 100% of your attention to what that horse is doing. Uh-huh. Otherwise, it'll just go, oh, well, I'm going to go and do whatever I want. So there's no space for mind chatter about anything else. So that's why I love those sports. And, you know, I, motorcycling is similar to that because if you don't pay attention while you're riding a motorcycle, you're in big trouble. And yeah, my, my dog is, it keeps me, she keeps me sane because, you know, all of the things that could be going on in the world and, and all of the things on the news and, mm-hmm. and the challenges in my work. Well, mm-hmm. She doesn't care about any of that. All she wants to know is, are we going for a walk in the paddock today? Yeah. Um, so I love that. She keeps me. She keeps me grounded. She keeps it real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely relate to that. I have two pets myself. Uh, we have a, uh, a Dachshund and a, and a pug. And whatever is happening in the outside world, you know, just to get a hug from them, there's nothing compared to that. Yeah. So I mean, fantastic, wide variety of interests. And today's conversation is obviously about AI and design because you've explored this space of. exponential tech and ai and machine learning and its impact on design and there's lots of articles online around this space so straight off the bat ai and design can you tell us a little bit about that should designers be worried should they be skeptical should they be excited or should they be hopeful and why what are your thoughts on that 
all of it. Should we be worried? Yes. Yes, we should be worried. We should be worried that we go into our projects with AI without asking the right questions. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Mm -hmm. So yes, we should be worried. We should be excited because this is an incredibly interesting inflection point in technology and design where we actually, as designers, we've got a part to play. It's not for people, you know, who are waving their hands around in the future. This is the here and now that we need to be contributing to how artificial intelligence progresses as a service to humanity and not something that's going to become sentient, self-aware and murder us. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't think that that's the future of artificial intelligence. It's not okay. the Terminator. It's not Skynet. It's not iRobot. I think disaster movies are great. But what we have here is an opportunity to really turn our understanding of technology and data and computing mm-hmm. to be a beneficial service for people. And I think designers have to play a very strong role in that transition. So yes, concerned, yes, excited, but mostly be in the conversation. That's the most important thing here. We have to be in the conversation. We have to have a seat at the table when we talk about what this artificial intelligence or whatever this service is that we're creating is going to do, how it's going to do it, how it's going to be inclusive, how it's going to be ethical, how it's going to be beneficial as a service to people and not something that is... um detrimental or perpetuates human biases such as sexism and racism and those sorts of things because we didn't feed it very good data mm-hmm, to train. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sounds so powerful in, in the way you're saying it, in the fact that you sound uh, more hopeful than anything else and seem to believe that designers have a solid role to play in time to come now and well, I'm an optimist, but yes, we do. And if we don't, if we don't ask these human questions, mm-hmm. who's going to ask them? Yeah. Is it yeah. going to be the developers who maybe are pretty caught up with what they're able to do with the code? Mm-hmm. Is it a business person who's pretty concerned by the priorities of the revenue and maybe their business objectives? Mm-hmm. Who's going to ask those human questions if mm-hmm. we don't ask those human questions? Mm-hmm. So would you say that designers are probably best placed to address that role of understanding empathy because they can contextualize and they can de-layer a lot of stuff? So inherently, they're very well placed to actually be part of this conversation going forward. I think so. I mean, everybody's capable of empathy, though. Sure, um, sure. sociopaths. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much capable of empathy. Yeah, yeah. But everybody is capable of empathizing. And Mm -hmm. I think rather than designers being the guardians of empathy and the guardians of the human part of the conversation, I think we're the leaders and the facilitators of that Mm -hmm. conversation Mm -hmm. and making sure that we enable all of those interested stakeholders who have a role to play in our AI projects. We enable them to have these conversations, to utilize empathy in the way that we decide what the AI will and won't do, Mm -hmm. probably more in the what it won't do than what it will. And I think that the question of what it won't do does not get answered or even asked as often as it should. Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. it's a little bit arrogant, I think, for us to say that we're the be-all and end-all of empathy Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and we own that as a contribution to the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think we are best placed to own ensuring that it's in the conversation Mm -hmm. and enabling all of the parties to have that empathetic discussion and the conversation about 
you know, what unintentional consequences or unintended consequences we could have mm-hmm. when we set this AI to do this task. Um, we don't own it. It's not our special precious thing that only designers get to do. But because we are sensitive to it and aware of it, it's really on us to make sure that there's a place for it. Okay. Fantastic. You know, one interesting thing you said over there is it's just as important to know how not to do something, right? And what AI, mm. it's important to know what it can't do or it won't do. But I mean, if if you look at the the space as a whole right now, it's still broadly early days, right? I mean, in, in my conversations with other people and there's a lot of hype out there, but it's still very early in this overall sort of AI journey as much as it's being mm. used in, in so many different industries. So is it fair to say that we we're not completely cognizant of how it might not behave or what it can't do. So how do you address that? You know, because if you know a subject really well, a lot of the times you know what to do and what not to do. But with AI, how do you address that kind of thing? I think the interesting thing is that most of what we talk about as AI at the moment actually isn't AI. It's machine learning. Okay. Um, you know, having a neural network that can learn in the same way. It's an organically inspired computer program that can learn in the same way as a brain does mm-hmm. in that you feed it a whole heap of data and it learns from the data that you use to train it in whatever you want it to do. Mm-hmm. And the majority of what we see in marketplace and out public at the moment is this narrow AI, mm-hmm. which is an intelligence that can do one thing really, really well, mm-hmm. like play chess or play go or uh, drive a car, a self-driving car, book something at, at a restaurant. So these are narrow AIs and these are real and these are here now. But there's this concept that's out there around this idea of general AI, yeah. which is more like your, you know, it's an intelligence that has an understanding of it, its environment and its context. Uh, and how that impacts what its behavior should be, mm-hmm. but it can process information at an infinitely faster rate than the human brain can. Mm-hmm. And so an example of that, say, from Hollywood would be an example of C-3PO because he is a general AI, he understands his context, he understands the environmental factors, he can process all of the information around him and draw conclusions and then process the data at an incredibly fast rate. And he, in that particular context, he calculates the odds of all of the things failing that the Star Wars cast try and do. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But that general AI is not something that is in existence right now. And I think it's things that we're playing with, but mm-hmm. it's not something that exists. Mm-hmm. You don't have an intelligence with that sort of understanding of its environment and context and surroundings. Okay. And then the, like the third flavor of it would be the superhuman AI, which is, you know, if we compared that intelligence to a human it would be like comparing human intelligence to that of an ant. It's just so much more advanced than, than human beings would be. Yeah. Now, superhuman AI doesn't exist either because it requires a bunch of things to be true, such as we can recreate a brain in silicon, which we kind of can't yet. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it also assumes that, that it, an AI can learn infant, infinitely. Mm-hmm. Just continue mm-hmm. to learn and learn and learn and learn. And we don't know that to be true either. So I think, in what we're seeing at the moment, it is a very exciting buzzword. Okay. And Matt Veloso tweeted, I think it was the end of 2008, my favorite tweet of his, which was, if it's written in Python, it's probably machine learning. If it's written in PowerPoint, it's probably AI. <laughs> so okay. you know, m- making the point that a lot of what we call AI at the moment 
is really yes. just machine, machine learning, learning. Okay. super smart machine learning. We're using these terms pretty interchangeably now, but it is a, it's an exciting buzzword and, and people want to explore the possibilities and rightly so. But I think there's going to be the direction that we go in with it is going to be more along the direction of automating repetitive tasks, things that computers can do easily and automating that rather than creating these robotic servants, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the C-3PO version of an AI. So, yeah, I think that's our kind of our immediate future. Okay. I think that definitely we need to make sure that we figure out what the parameters are going to be. Okay. I think that's a, a great broad landscape that we've painted out over there. Hmm. You know, taking some of those thoughts into specific projects that maybe that you've explored, uh, Katya, can you tell us a little bit about in what areas have you explored machine learning and actual projects that you've worked on? And maybe how is it that, you know, designers or project managers or even clients uh, could address this conversation around, say, design or communication projects? So the most recent one that we've worked on in Design at Australia has been one for um, a pilot concept for Transport for New South Wales. Um, the initiative is all around creating transport environment where women feel safe after dark, mm-hmm. utilizing that particular transport network. Okay. And so we wanted to, in this case, and the reason why AI became part of this project is we really wanted to distribute the responsibility for women's safety across more actors. Like we didn't want it to be the responsibility of the woman who is feeling unsafe to report things, mm-hmm. to be responsible for changing things so that she felt safer. So, you know, to change or police her behavior in some way so that Mm. she would be safer. Mm -hmm. We wanted to look at what external sources could supply what we would need to help women feel safer after dark without them having to do anything. And collecting data is actually a really great way of creating those safer experiences for women. So what we did with this project was to use data and the, the, the data that's collected by Transport for New South Wales as an intelligent extension mm-hmm. of, you know, travelers' eyes and ears. So using machine learning and video, you're looking at what uh, data was captured, um, what data was captured in the video, uh, either by closed circuit TV, uh, and analyzing those interactions so that we could actually transform the experience. And so it goes kind of it's got three primary tracks that support each other, this overarching idea and using data um, to make the right decisions to improve women's safety. Uh-huh. So there is the, the data collection. So it could be reported data, video cameras, social media data, data from third parties that that's fed into it. There's then also the, the crowdsource information. So there's that human element. But mm-hmm. having the data automatically put into an intelligent engine mm-hmm. that can process what's happening for in video feeds that can do natural language processing for text that can learn from that to feed back to transport for New South Wales what a good or a bad spot looks like mm-hmm. um, for a woman's safety is that's that provides a much wider and much richer set of information to allow them to make decisions about where they make changes, how they implement, you know, designated safety zones and where those should be, how they could alert people, 
when they have something that is important to know for their travel plans, figuring out which areas need to be changed from something that's dark and uninviting to something that's perhaps intriguing and community valued. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So using this this two-layer solution, you have your human-centric research that you can be doing and data that you can be gathering, but then you have your data-centric and your data-informed information that you capture. And AI allows you to process both of those things to get good outputs to help make decisions about where to make changes, where to do interventions, where to change interactions. And so this is one example of, of how we used artificial intelligence as an enabler within mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. project. Um, and I think the, the thing for designers to, to really get to grips with when you're working on something like this is where data fits into your sources of information yeah. and how it drives the solution design that you do. Because I think often experienced designers, we focus very heavily on the qualitative. And if we do quantitative, usually it's because we've decided that we need to do a survey with a statistically significant sample size or something like that mm-hmm. um, uh, using an AI and, and intelligently mining that data for insight mm-hmm. using artificial intelligence. You just get a, a much richer picture of what's going on and where you can be impactful in your solution design. And I think that's going to be the thing that designers need to get a grip of. Uh, I feel like I should go back to university and do a data science degree, but I just don't have mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. No, in fact, that was going to be my next question. Are there a new set of skills that they need to develop? Because, you know, A, we're in this in the middle of this global pandemic, right? So there's already a lot of education has gone on uh, online. So e-learning is really big right now. And at the same time, there's this other parallel conversation around the future of education itself. One of the thoughts is that it might not be three or four year programs that people do in the future, but it might be more like a Harvard allows you a subscription-based learning program where every year you you know do an ongoing thing for a month, a year or two months a year, and you can do it from wherever you are. So uh, do, you, do you find that designers also should invest in that kind of learning, ongoing learning on an ongoing basis in these areas? Because they can no longer sort of say, okay, no, this is technology and, you know, and this data and it, it's a bit much. I'll deal with it only if I have to actually design a project. But now you have quantitative data that can inform qualitative data in many, many more ways. And AI empowers that in many ways. So you need to actually develop some of those skills, both on the, on the tech side as also how you deal with data. So designers, you, you feel will need to do that on, on an ongoing basis? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're getting really close to the conversation about designers. Do you need to learn how to code? (laughs) Um, I No, uh, I don't think designers need to learn how to code. Um, My my thoughts on this is that if you want to be designing in a world that is going to be relying more and more on automation of tasks, Mm -hmm. uh, automation of services, Mm -hmm. if you want to have a seat at that table, then you need to understand the very basics of data science. Okay. You need to understand how a machine learns, how it is taught, how you make sure that biases don't get introduced to it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some very basic ways of, of just starting to play with it. I mean, Google Teachable Machine is a simple way of understanding how you teach a machine. You can, and it shows you how you teach a, a machine classes, 
and how then that machine can take the information that you give it and respond to you in a particular way. Mm-hmm. So my intention is that the designers who want to fully contribute, like really, really fully contribute, are going to need this additional layer of skill mm-hmm. or an additional mm-hmm. layer of knowledge at least to understand what can and can't be done with it. Because data is so powerful and data now shapes so much of experience. So if you think about, say, Netflix mm-hmm. and your recommendations of what you see on Netflix, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is driven by data. So it's driven by your preferences, the actions that you take as a user, the things that you watch, mm-hmm. and it learns about you. Mm-hmm. And it provides you a personalized experience mm-hmm. of what you get recommended and what you see in Netflix. Yep. Now, Netflix interfaces and interactions are designed by designers. But if they don't have an understanding of how that algorithm works in the background to to a, a reasonable degree, I'm not saying that they need to be data scientists, but if they don't understand how data delivers uh, that experience, then their designs are probably not going to be able to either take a full advantage of what's possible mm-hmm. um, or perhaps be limited in some way. So I think that that is something that if you're going to develop skill sets to be able to design in a really holistic fashion, mm-hmm. uh, then data science is something I would definitely be putting on on my list uh, or at least an introduction to data science. To, to, to that, definitely. And and is, is it also, just to build on that, is it fair to assume that... If, let's say, for example, if you take that Netflix example, right? I mean, all of us binge watch on Netflix because it's a, it's a great interface and it's very intuitive and it learns and, you know, it's great content. But like you said, the interface is well-designed. It takes into account the data behind it and the recommendations. Now, for me as a consumer, let's assume for a minute that maybe it had designed that interface. So because you've, you've done really well with that, uh, is it more likely that companies that invest in this will therefore naturally sort of bubble up a little bit more, get more of the spotlight. Clients will naturally come to them. And therefore, if other agencies that don't jump onto this bandwagon, that that chasm will just sort of increase. I mean, I'm just saying on the flip side. Yeah, I think it's definitely a worthy question. Companies that don't embrace what they might be able to do to enhance their customer experiences using these new and emerging technologies mm-hmm. will become laggards um, okay. in terms of you know what they actually can achieve. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, you don't want to get left behind. Yeah. But also you don't want to make bad decisions either. So rushing into you know stupid AI projects is not the ideal scenario either. There's a really good Harvard Business Review article about how to choose your first AI project and what the criteria should be. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's things like making sure that you choose something that's actually not too big but also not too small so that it actually does have an impact. Um, choose something that is closely beneficial to your industry. So if you're a medical supplies company, then creating an AI that does resume screening is probably not going to be super useful to your organization. Mm -hmm. But creating an AI that does decision support for doctors is definitely something that is really valuable for your industry and your company. So choosing something that's really aligned with what your business is about Mm -hmm. uh, helps you to select what your first AI project should be. Mm -hmm. Um, You also want something that's going to give you a fairly quick win Mm -hmm. uh, because people are impatient 
and they like to see results uh, mm-hmm. occurring. Mm-hmm. So choosing something that you can show progress mm-hmm. within like six to 12 months or so mm-hmm. um, is important. And the other aspect of it to help you with your first AI project is to, it, these skills are not lying around waiting to be picked up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are, you know, experienced designers with data science knowledge plus people who know how to do machine learning and teach machines in a really robust and inclusive fashion, they're not just lying around. So rather than building your own AI department or trying to build those skills in your organization, maybe look for partners so that you can accelerate the programs of work that you decide mm-hmm. to do. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that HBR um, article is a really terrific one. And, and just if you Google it, it'll how to choose your first AI project, I think it's called, uh, it's really easy to find. I think organizations that don't get on the runway for this mm-hmm. will end up being left behind, probably miss out on opportunities where they could have really done something innovative in their organization. And, and when I'm talking about innovative, I'm not talking about creating new products or anything like that. I'm just talking about finding new value. Yeah. And sometimes finding value is figuring out how we can do something more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. we can do something more efficiently if we automate the processes that the humans are doing or some of the humans are doing. So we can find some cost efficiencies. Well, that's innovative. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be something that completely disrupts the entire world for mm-hmm. you to achieve something innovative in your organization. Mm-hmm. I think that particular example what you spoke about is a great segue into this framework that you've spoken about in the past, uh, Katya, which is the augmented services uh, canvas, where you know it sort yes. of helps you take into account how data can play a role in this sort of structure. So can you maybe just help break that down a little bit more and and help our listeners understand? And just before that, just for the listeners, the particular article that uh, Katya is referring to will be there in the show notes. But over to you, Katya, if you can just talk a little bit about this augmented services canvas, please. Sure. So this is some work that was done by Pontus Bonenstahl, Swedish, and that's not how you pronounce his last name, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but he works at Holmstead University in Sweden. And what he's done is he's created a canvas, which he's called the Augmented Services Platform Canvas, which just helps you frame the problem and ask the right questions before you launch into solution mode. Mm. You can integrate it with other strategic tools like Lean Canvas or Experience Canvas or the Business Model Canvas. They all can play together. If you've used canvases before, Mm -hmm. it will seem fairly familiar to you. It's sort of a shaded arrow on this particular canvas, which indicates a direction for your train of thought. And it's about really figuring out for networked platform services, connecting the idea of an algorithmic impact with what happens for the actual augmentation of human workers and using that to create a really magical user experience. The train of thought that you want to go through is putting ethics and impact at the beginning and at the end. So the first thing is to talk about ethics and risk. How could this be misused? How could it get broken? Have we thought about all of the things, people who are going to be affected? Have we thought about the unintended consequences of this? Mm -hmm. Um, It really helps designers map the relationships between data and algorithms and then what that service is going to actually even look like when it manifests for the user. So it looks at where does the data come from? What's the quality of the data? What impact is the algorithm going to have? What happens to the augmented workers? Are there things to consider there? Say if we're automating something that people do, what happens to those people? Um, What kind of culture is underpinning that in an organization to make sure that it actually can work? 
what competencies does an organization need? Do you actually have the people you need mm-hmm. in order to get this project up and running? What resources do you need? What is the user experience going to be like? And the other thing that it, it also explores is around the idea of, so with AI, and especially, again, let's look at the Netflix example, you have something that's called a cold start. Mm-hmm. Um, and it asks you the questions of how you deal with a cold start, which is where the AI doesn't know anything about you. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it has to, it, it has to start learning. So if you think about Netflix or, or some of those other sort of content based platforms that use recommendation algorithms behind them, they might at the start, when you sign up, ask you to select five areas of interest for you so that it can start learning about who you are and what you like and how to recommend things for you. That's a, an answer to how to handle a cold start. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the canvas looks at those sorts of questions as well and makes you think about it before you get there. Okay. Um, and it also finishes around what values are you instilling in this platform, making sure that, that it is inclusive of all of the stakeholders and it doesn't perpetuate you know, negative human biases because you, we've all seen the automatic hand washer that will dispense soap for a white hand but not a mm-hmm, black hand mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it was trained by white people. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of examples of where AI has gone really, really wrong yeah. because people did not ask these questions at the start. Yeah, and, and, and so using yeah. this canvas as a conversation piece is really good for that. Yeah, no, I was just going to add to you similar thing, right? Where that hand dispenser and with Google itself, where those two colored people got tagged. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the image recognition, which tagged African American humans as gorillas because it was trained by its developers mm-hmm. and because of the inherent biases in hiring and all of the systemic things uh, in racism in systemic in society, a lot of those developers are predominantly white men. So Mm. what happens is don't know what you don't know because it's outside your experience and you have to intentionally be inclusive in your training of an AI for you to ensure that you don't end up with those sorts of uh, perpetuations of um, such as racism or sexism. You've got to make the effort. This canvas helps you ask those questions and make that effort. So is it fair to assume that this canvas can be used by either a designer, a manager, a client and irrespective of whatever level of experience they might be at, whether they're, say, uh, early on in their career or someone who's very high up, uh, as long as they're willing to ask all the layered questions that need to be asked. So it it can be used by pretty much anyone or do you need to have a certain amount of experience to be able to get the best out of it? I think it's a team tool, Mm -hmm. if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yes. This is not a tool that a manager sits down and fills out or a designer sits down and fills out or Mm -hmm. a developer sits down and fills out. Mm-hmm. This is a tool where you bring all of those diverse skill sets and viewpoints together to have the conversation. It's just not for one person. As a designer, I can fill out a lot of it, mm-hmm. but there's some things that I don't know because they rely on very specialist knowledge about data and algorithms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I can ask the questions of the people in my team who do have that knowledge. And I think that there's also questions about perhaps the values that we're instilling in this limited service mm-hmm. that perhaps the managers in the organization or the people who set the tone for what the organization is all about, mm-hmm. um, they might be able to be better placed to answer those questions. But the developer who doesn't know the answer to that question can ask it using this canvas. So I think it's a really a collaborative team tool that needs to be used by everyone who has a vested interest in the project 
and who is going to be a contributor to the project. Fantastic. And again, to our listeners, uh, a link to the article and uh, the author will be there in the show notes. So you can definitely access it there. Um, one of the things that we covered briefly in the last, uh, say, five minutes or so is this idea of bias itself, right? Because those data sets, if it's showing it's not dispensing for a darker color hand or it's tagging a certain uh, race as animals, you know, how do you then handle this uh, conversation around bias? Because a lot of the time in a team or a collaborative environment or even individually, like you said, people don't even know what they don't know. And when you're dealing with a conversation or a project, you don't realize your own human biases, but then how do you then take into account, okay, how do I ensure that I don't add this bias or I'm aware of you know, this bias coming into this data set. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So there's some really good work that's been done around this by Dustin Allison Hope. There's a couple of guiding principles that you need. So you need to expand who is assessing the AI experience. Mm-hmm. So your team needs to look at the historical data sets that have been fed into the AI to make sure that the society's past beliefs about, uh, you know, topics such as gender, race, equality aren't actually negatively impacting the algorithms mm-hmm. that are shaping the future AI experience. And that means that you have to get the right people involved because often the right people are missing from such groups and you need to get the different set of communities and people involved, including engineers, data scientists, product development teams, and people from different races, different religions, different gender identities, different spoken languages, different age groups to assess that AI experience. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first thing because otherwise I'm sure whoever built Amazon's sexist CV screening yeah. algorithm yeah. Um, wasn't a woman and it wasn't assessed by women. Yeah, so it, it wouldn't have happened otherwise, yeah. Mm. Um, and the other thing is is using this canvas. So you want to explore all the possible AI scenarios, the good ones and the bad ones. Microsoft has got this fantastic card game called Judgment Call okay. where you take a scenario, an AI scenario such as you know facial recognition in an airport mm-hmm. and choose a stakeholder, a traveler of a Middle Eastern descent and then you think of something that could happen in that scenario and then write a one-star product review for that experience. So, for example, you know, I came into the airport, I'm from uh, Beirut, and the facial recognition in the airport misidentified me as a terrorist and I was uh, chased through the airport and then taken into a room for six hours until they realised that I wasn't who they thought they were. One star. So really exploring those possible AI scenarios where things can go wrong, like Mm -hmm. it's super easy to ask yourself what will go right Mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. just as important to ask ourselves, how can this go wrong to mm-hmm. prevent design choices that are going to be damaging or have unforeseen consequences? So, you know, imagining a Black Mirror episode resulting from your latest decision is a really good way to get into the mind. To get into that, yeah. So that's another way of trying to eliminate bias. Really designing for ongoing human training of AI. Really good way to prevent bad scenarios is to incorporate ways for human beings to intervene with the AI experience. So you want to go, it's not, it's not a one and done. You don't train it once and then leave it. Mm-hmm, you have to mm-hmm. keep checking in. You have to keep making sure you're monitoring their learning and making sure that the. So it's like product design on, on an ongoing basis, yeah. any kind of software. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Same, yeah. same principles, same principles. 
that'll improve the customer experience and add a level of trust and confidence if you mm-hmm. continue to involve humans in the ongoing training. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that I would say is just be really more transparent with, with the public. Being transparent about how your algorithm works and what it does and where it gets the, the data from and how it uses it. You could even go so far as to giving something an ethics rating, an AI ethical rating uh, to help people make good decisions. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, if you think about it, food companies have to put all the ingredients on their products. So companies should list the ingredients of an AI experience. Yeah. What are the data sets? What are the algorithms? And how does it work? Because then that transparency provided it, you know, it's understandable will create a better level of trust with the people who are having that AI experience. So those are a few pointers, I guess, in terms of what you can do to reduce or eliminate bias. Fantastic. And just one more question as we sort of start winding down here. Specific to that, because you mentioned this framework, right? As if companies could just transparently put out there what they were thinking before while they were creating this data set. Do you know of any companies that have actually done this yet or are in the process of doing it? I think Microsoft has a really good initiative at the moment around uh, their AI. So they actually have a set of artificial intelligence ethical principles. Mm-hmm. Easily so. They've had some difficulties in the past. I mean, we all yeah, have a Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. From, what a nightmare. From like, hey, I love people to like full Nazi in 24 hours yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. And so, you know, they've been burned and they, they're better now. So they're creating articles with guidelines for developers of conversational AI. They have a series of artificial intelligence ethical principles. So they're actually exploring the space well. And as I said, they've got that card game judgment call, which I absolutely adore. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're a good example of an organization that's got it wrong previously, learning from their mistakes, not necessarily perfect yet, but definitely going in the right direction in asking the questions with all of the projects that they're putting together. Mm. They've had another crack at the chatbot, but that one was it's kind of even worse. It wasn't didn't get to full fascist, but what it does is it has the little sister Zoe, it has a bunch of triggers. And so if you mention if you don't mention any kind of race, yeah, yeah. Middle East, big name American politicians, then she shuts the conversation down. And yeah. that's a little bit worse if you think about it. Because yeah. what their unintentional consequence in trying to curate that conversation and not have her be bigoted, fascist, Nazi. That, that in its, um, itself is a bias. Done, yeah. Yeah. Well, they've got, they've got an AI censoring without any context, Yeah, which is actually kind of a bit worse because, mm-hmm. and, and it's quite troubling because it's a very uncompromising approach to a mm. whole cast of topics. So I think Microsoft is to watch for sure as to mm. how they're approaching uh, AI and ethics, mm-hmm. the work that they're doing and where they've got it wrong, where they've got it right, where they've got it half wrong, half right. Mm. I think what we're seeing in governments is I think in Canada, they have made it a federal priority that AI and that delivers products and services for citizens is ethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, there's a giant executive order which just talks about, you know, owning it and leading it and being in charge of it. And the word ethics or ethical does not appear once. Okay. Um, so that is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's really worth watching what the big tech companies do, do the, with this because all of them, Alphabet, IBM, Microsoft, in their annual reports for mm-hmm. the very first time 
I think it was last year uh, or the end of the year before, for the very first time they included in their annual reports, in their risk sections, experimentation with artificial intelligence technologies as, a, okay. as an annual report risk to their businesses. Wow. So they, okay. they need to have a plan. They okay. need to have a plan. Okay. So, so I, I think uh, for the designers and the creators listening to this, you've got mention of that HBR article, you sort of approach an AI project, and then you've got the augmented services canvas, and then these judgment calls. So there's enough about user research that you can start your project with over there. Right now we're in this middle of this pandemic, right? And I know that you've conducted a couple of these sessions online around what is this crisis-proof business canvas, which you have at DesignIt. And not to confuse our listeners too much with too many different canvases, but this is of tremendous value. So taking that into account, if you just want to so briefly touch upon that, specific to the design industry as a whole, the communications industry as a whole, do you see some opportunities, the result of COVID going forward? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was, I was reading it this morning. It's pro, It's been misquoted to Winston Churchill because I think it's appeared before him, but Winston Churchill gets quoted with it most often, which is never waste a good crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is opportunity in crisis, absolutely. Opportunity to change, opportunity to learn, opportunity to grow, opportunity to do things differently. And I think for this particular crisis, there is a huge opportunity for us as we, that normal's not coming back. That as because as the economy restarts, it's going to be under conditions that we've never seen before. Mm. We've nobody's ever been here before, and so the organisations that are kind of quietly sitting there waiting for normal to turn back up again mm-hmm. are going to be sadly disappointed and on a slow slide to mediocrity and irrelevance. So we, you know, design it. We we play with things and and try and figure out how might we improve. Um, whatever situation or challenge that's put in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and with COVID-19, what we've tried to do is create tools for our clients to use or, or for anybody to use. We're, we're making them publicly available uh, for anybody to use to try and create a response to mm-hmm. this particular crisis that's happening right now with COVID-19 around the world, but also to set up those businesses for resilience in the future. So if there is you know, further crisis then it's not as big a a disaster or they actually have a a way of approaching it and having a conversation about it. So the canvas is intended to help you undertake an assessment of where you were Mm pre-crisis and assess the impact of the crisis on your organisation. It then looks at what challenges in the different company functions that you're facing in the short, medium and long term, those company functions being people, strategy and operations, processes, and and sourcing from your suppliers, Mm -hmm. and then figuring out what kind of action plan you could put in place in the immediate term, in the sort of midterm, and then into the long term. And each different mindset of reacting in the short term, responding in the midterm, and rethinking in the long term has different actions that you can take. So Mm. we've created a bunch of action cards to suggest ideas for how you might approach your challenges. and a canvas to have a collaborative conversation with people in your business about where you are, what's the challenges in front of you, what you're going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really super happy to share that with you. And this, again, it's like it's not one of those one and done things. You have to iterate on it as the landscape shifts mm-hmm. uh, because things change. And, and in this particular crisis, things move very rapidly. My march was making a different decision every single day. 
wow. depending on yeah. you know, what, what the government told me was happening at the time. So I think that it's a good way of exploring your own organization's resilience, but you can also apply it to a product's resilience mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's quite a flexible canvas. And I'm going to make that available for you so that you can share a link to it. Um, using action cards, it's a, it's not going to be fit for everyone, but at least it's a good start. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Katya. And, and I think keeping the energy going, the energy that we started with uh, has been the case throughout this conversation. And sort of to end it on, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions and quick answers from your end uh, and then i think as we yeah, sort of like a lightning round. yeah take it home take it home all right so if you're ready yeah. if you, you can tell us a book you'd recommend to better understand ai exponential tech you know automation and design that kind of thing life 3.0 would be my recommendation for that one it's by <laughs> by the max Tegnard. fantastic next question katya who are your personal inspirations and why so someone who had a lot of impact on me when I saw her speak at a conference, a lady called Marie Van Drescher. Mm-hmm. She is actually deaf. So when I say I saw her speak, I actually saw her speak because she signed her talk. Okay. Um, and what I found inspirational was not anything to do with being a deaf person on stage or, you know, signing a talk or anything like that, because I, I don't think that we should find inspiration in people who have a disability doing things that are ordinary yeah what i found super inspirational about her is that she changed my mindset and i've done a lot of work in the disability sector so me to get my mindset changed again is that's like a pretty big deal and she just said to me nothing for us without us and it really brought into crystal focus some areas of work that i'd been doing uh, where i thought i was being a good advocate Hmm. for people who have a disability when in fact I was actually silencing voices Hmm. and choosing to use my voice to speak for them, which is really, it's wrong. And I think that she realigned the way that I look at how to be an ally Mm -hmm. for anybody whose voice is either silenced or marginalized, Mm -hmm. how to amplify voices Mm -hmm. to make sure that I don't speak for people that I amplify them speaking for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really brought into crystal sharp focus a bunch of things in my mind about how to really support marginalized or people with disabilities or people for, for who, whatever reason, are not being heard. If only Donald Trump, you know, learned from you, Katya, I think the world would be in a better place right now. <laughs> it's asking for a lot, but we live in hope. <laughs> At this uncertain time, one thing that keeps you grounded? So for COVID, I located to our farm. So we have a, we have a farm, 36 acres, a garden, and it requires my attention and it doesn't care what else is going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can look out in my garden and go, oh, I need to do that task or that chore or those things. Or, you know, I can go out into the paddock and see so I walk in the paddock every day with the mm-hmm. dog and I can see, you know, clovers coming up. Uh, we've got weeds here. Can't uh, get all caught up in esoteric things when just the nature that you're a part of demands your attention. Mm-hmm. So being in this place mm-hmm. um, has absolutely helped me to stay sane uh, and stay really grounded because yeah, when you're getting stabbed by blackberries that you're trying to pull out, <laughs> you know, there's 
can't think it's about it. It's a very real thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, looking ahead, what are you hopeful for? I am hopeful that we come out of this pandemic with a much better model for how to be an economy and to be a society. Mm. Uh, that is what I'm hopeful for because we have a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-lifetime chance to reset how we do things. And if we can't find some ways to change so that we can address inequities, so that we can make broad-sweeping changes across society, then I think we have missed a really huge chance. Wow. Thank you so much, uh on that hopeful note, thank you so much for this conversation, Katya. Um, if people have to get in touch That's with so you, pleasure is all mine. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, if people can get in touch with you, can um, they find you online? Very easy to find on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Lucky Cat with a K, L-U-C-K-Y-K-A-T. Okay. And I'm also on Instagram under less skewer handle, literally at Katya Forbes, first name, last name. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Such an amazing and layered conversation and and so much insight that I'm sure a lot of the designers in the creative community listening to this conversation will have tangible takeaways that they can learn from and act on. Thank you again, Katya. And uh, till the next time. You're so welcome. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. And if you have feedback to share or know anyone else who you feel should be featured on this podcast, Drop me a line on karn at outlined.co. Till the next time, with gratitude.